each evening we'll offer a talk and the aim of which is to help clarify our practice and to really expand particularly the way we understand our practice and hopefully uh, give also some energy and inspiration. And this evening I want to explore the larger theme of the retreat, which is embracing the dark and inviting the light. That's my theme. And I want to again begin by uh, reflecting some on this very uh, special time, this time of the solstice. Literally, solstice means sun standing still. It's that very um, special moment sort of between, uh, between the increasing darkness and the increasing light. And in this hemisphere, at least, the uh, solstice at this time, the winter solstice, is a time when the earth is more quiet, more still, more, more cold. Um, there's, a, there's a very uh, very powerful poem by the uh, <coughs> poet John Updike, and it goes like this about this time of year. The days are short, the sun a spark, hung thin between the dark and dark. And of course, I don't know if it's a coincidence or an irony, but of course, uh, socially, you know what's happening out there. (laughs) It is frenetic, right? (laughs) In all sorts of ways, last minute shopping. I don't know, before I came here, maybe like you, I don't know how many emails I got telling me of last-minute bargains as, as well as last-minute requests to donate to worthy causes. Did you get those? It was, uh, they, were, they were expanding in, in volume. And, so, and then, it, of course, it continues. You know, there's a little bit of a reprieve for many people around Christmas, as there may have been for some around Hanukkah or maybe for Kwanzaa or those who celebrate the solstice, um, but then around New Year's it, it starts again, right? And, and uh, it gets frenzied, and we're choosing really to take this time uh, for quiet, really. This, this, um, really, at this time, we're, we're following this very ancient vocation of using silence and stillness in, in, in this case, we're really imitating the earth, using silence and stillness as a set of resources for insight and renewal and revisioning. On a five-day retreat, some of that tends to come later. <laughs> the first day is preparation for renewal and revisioning in, in, many, in many ways. And I'll, I'll come to that in a while, because I know the uh, first day uh, for many of us is challenging. 
Um, but there's this, there's this time that we've chosen in a way to depart from the norm and to have some quiet time and have some time, some time to look. Uh, and we are really guided by the basic, very simple practice of presence. Our practice is one of cultivating presence to our experience, to our bodies, to our minds, to our hearts. We speak of mindfulness, but probably a more accurate or more comprehensive term would be mind-heart-body-fullness. Because it's uh, really all of those, all of those parts of ourselves. And we do this over and over again. And as as John said, uh, one of the keys to this practice is repetition. We keep on looking. And it's just, it's such a fascinating aspect of the learning process that this practice works by looking over and over again and noticing over and over again. And it's, if we would try to understand the process, it's complicated. We keep looking for example, at the breath, and we have no new content really uh, introduced at the retreat, maybe other than the meals and the talks. <laughs> and, and we, in that uh, open space, um, things can emerge in all sorts of ways. Things can emerge, emotions, feelings, memories, thoughts. New qualities can emerge. And old qualities or old habits or old ways of thinking keep on repeating. And we get to notice them and eventually see them more clearly and be able to respond wisely. I often think that the, uh, the essence of this practice can be summarized uh, rather briefly by saying that we cultivate this mindfulness or mind, heart, body fullness. And on the basis, moment to moment, of our awareness, of our presence about what's happening, it could be both inside or outside in an uh, interpersonal or social setting. On the basis of that, we cultivate our most wise and compassionate intention and then we respond. And our practice is to do that moment after moment. And that's it. That's all we do. You know? And it's simple in that sense. And as is said in the Jewish tradition, the rest is commentary. <laughs> and there's a lot of commentary. And we'll be giving commentary. I'll be giving commentary for the rest of the evening <laughs> and so forth. Um, but we cultivate that presence it's in the, in the uh, core text on the foundations of mindfulness. It said, a practitioner goes to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut. This is an empty hut, a big one. We go to an empty hut and sit down with the body erect and we establish mindfulness in front Ever mindful, one breathes in and breathes out. Those are the basic instructions. And then later it says, 
a practitioner acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending the limbs, when wearing the clothes, when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, and so forth. That there's that cultivation of a, of a sense of presence. As John was really saying this morning, we first really need to stabilize attention. And I think a big part of what we've done today is continuing to stabilize attention. Stabilize attention sounds simple. What stabilize attention translates into experientially is having the mind go all over the place. And we say, come back, come back to the breath. And it goes all over the place for a while more. And we say, come back, and we return. And we were, we were sort of summarizing, we were talking over the evening meal, and we were sort of summarizing what for some people is a predominant experience, which we summarized as tired, achy, and a lot of thinking. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? <laughs> And we just, and we keep coming back. We stabilize attention, particularly from the thinking, which is happening. We have this, all this momentum, really, from the last days. And we, in a way, we respond to that by simply keep returning over and over again. And in, in our time here, the momentum dies down. And the thinking, uh, for many of us, becomes less we don't fuel it, and it tends to become less over time. And so we stabilize, we settle, and then, like John was saying, we, on the basis of a stable attention, then we explore what's there. And we'll be emphasizing that in the instructions, particularly starting tomorrow morning, that quality of exploration, of really being with the experience being with thoughts, emotions, the body, whatever really comes up in in our experience. We explore it, we notice what's there. We try to develop a kind of non-reactive, non-judgmental presence, which can simply be with what's there. And what we're really doing here is training in developing that non-reactive, non-judgmental presence. That's another word for what we uh, call mindfulness. And it's really necessary to have that quality of presence to be able to notice what's happening in experience. And in a sense, we train here at the retreat, and then we bring that quality of presence out into our lives, into our relationships, into our work, into our participation in our communities. And that quality of non-reactive, non-judgmental presence is incredibly important for communication, for connection, for working with conflict, with all sorts of things. It's right at the heart of skillful and wise ways of responding to all sorts of situations, really all, I think, uh, the parts of our lives. And yet, uh, as, as I was saying, today, for many of us, has been challenging. And just to know... Uh, those of you who are in groups today know that uh, many of us experienced uh, challenges the first day, which could be summarized as 
you know, tired, achy, a lot of thinking. <laughs> you know, there are other variations as well. And it's good to know that this simply comes with the territory. It's um, not a sign that it would have been better to um, take a vacation to a warm place <laughs> for these five days. <laughs> not that those have to be mutually exclusive. Um, but really, it comes to the territory, even with very experienced practitioners. There can, you know, as, as we know, it, for many or most of us, including the teachers, it took a lot to get here. You know, a lot of organization, a lot of activity, in many cases, uh, travel, uh, in many cases, finishing up uh, a lot at work. And there is that momentum, and, and we can, part of our mind just says, God, it was so hard to get here. I just want to rest. I just want to sleep a little bit and rest. And many of us maybe have had days or weeks or years of sleep deprivation and come to a place like here and not much is happening. Not much is happening externally. And so there can be that tiredness. There can be uh, a removal from our usual habits, right? So we may notice that we really, there's something in our day that typically happened, whether it was, you know, uh, connected with, uh, you know, the tea that we have at a certain time or some little habit or ritual that isn't quite here today, that isn't here at the retreat. And we might find, may find a wanting of that. We want that, or we want to do this, or we want to Sometimes we do get addicted to, to electronics. We may want, oh, I really got to check my email. Has anyone had that thought? I remember I've done retreats here, and sometimes I would actually come back from a meal and go into my room and just have the habit go on in my mind. I wonder, I wonder what's new on the email. This is right in the middle of a retreat, right? <laughs> it's just like there's that habit energy, you know, I come back from somewhere, time to check, right? A lot of us do that. And we can notice those habits. We can notice sometimes the wanting, or we can notice the restlessness, or we can notice the quality of um, um, being resistant to how it feels in the body. And for many of us, we're, for many of us, it's, we're doing more meditation practice that we, than we've done. And so, we need to find how can I have a, as it were, a sustainable posture for these days. You know, that, that's, that's up for some of us, how to find that. And so there's a lot of ways that this first day is challenging. You know? And you know, a lot of that can be addressed in, in the meetings. And for some of the difficult states of mind, uh, or emotion particularly, we really invite especially mindfulness, just really to notice what's going on. We can notice wanting. We can notice the aversion. You know, and I'll say more about that, about that later. We can notice the proliferation of thoughts. We can just notice, and we'll be giving instructions, and many of you have had instructions that sometimes it's helpful just to name the top five. You know, what's your top five list of thoughts? 
can be helpful to know. And okay, and then when number two comes by, oh, there's number two. Oh, number four. Oh, number two is connected with number four, which is connected with number 16, which is connected, you know, and so forth. And we can sometimes, uh, not to make it too complicated or, you know, a big research project, but we can really uh, notice what's there. Notice that there's that repetitive thought about this relationship or the job or whatever it might be. And we can notice that and not so much push it away, but just notice it and gently let it go. And so we can work in that way with, with thoughts. And really what this practice is about is, is this precious practice of cultivating the mind, heart, and body and cultivating our, our quality of attention. There's a beautiful passage from one of the great uh, Thai teachers of the 20th century, a teacher named Achan Moon, and he said, of the many things that people value and care for in the world, a person's mind and heart are the most precious. In fact, the mind and heart are the foremost treasures in the whole world. So be sure to look after them well. To realize the the true nature of the mind and heart is to realize the Dhamma, the the Dharma or the, the teachings, the truth. Understanding the mind and heart is the same as understanding the Dhamma or the Dharma. Once the mind and heart are known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. And that's what we're doing. We're using this practice to go more deeply. And that those tools really prepare us to be skillful with the dark and light. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the talk, this way that we can use this theme that's so much present with us um, at this time, the theme of embracing the dark and inviting the light. We can really use that theme, as I think, as a way to uh, energize and inspire our practice. That's my aim, is to give some ways of understanding that theme, which I hope you can can resonate with. Um, And so I want to talk about four ways that we embrace the dark, and two ways that we invite the light. That doesn't mean that the darkness is more important (laughs) or wins or something. Gosh, should make it three and three or something. Maybe maybe next year. Um, But I I want to talk about these four ways of exploring the darkness. The first is we explore the darkness in the sense of this way we stop and are still, like the dark earth. So darkness as signifying stopping and being still. And the second is looking at darkness in its meaning of the unknown, or not knowing, or mystery. There's a way that we can open to darkness in that way. The third sense of darkness is the darkness as signifying what's difficult. And the fourth is very much, again, like the earth, the the dark earth, a darkness as generative or fertile. We know that the earth is dark, but down in those DNA, there's a lot happening. 
in the plants, in the earth, there's a lot that's preparing for new growth. It's very much the way that we can relate to darkness is that when we go into the darkness, we're really also inviting uh, that kind of growth and creativity. It's really, again, why we come and are in retreat. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, that we also, in our practice, generally close our eyes and sit with eyes closed in a kind of darkness in order to cultivate insight, in order to see better. There's a lot of paradox, you know, there's a lot of paradox there. You know, I was thinking also of uh, my father, uh, Simon, um, was uh, blind the last 25 years of his life. And it was interesting being with him, you know, and walking and really being his eyes. And at least once or twice, uh, he did retreats. And I would walk with him and I would be his eyes. You know, walking around and making sure he could navigate. It was, you know, it was very, it's pretty emotional, you can imagine, to, to um, do that. Even thinking about it, it was quite a while ago, thinking about that. But as he became blind and did not have the outward vision, my sense was that something opened up inside that led to more seeing and a bigger heart. It's quite interesting. And I'll come back to that theme because it's a theme in a lot of the, the literature of the world that, you know, like I know, I remember from reading Greek plays in school. Do you remember some of the blind people were the ones who were wise? Right? Interesting. That's a, I think it's an archetype in many, many cultures. Here's Wendell Berry, the poet, on going into darkness. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So first of all, we embrace the darkness by stopping and being still. We stop the momentum, we move away from the uh, busyness of our lives, and we stop, we anchor the attention and the breath and the body, and we gradually find that the mind, the mind's busyness tends to stop over time. You know, so there's, a, there's an external stopping, and there can be an in, this internal, internal stopping. And in, in the stopping on a retreat, we, we in a way trust that when we stop moving and pay attention, what's important will surface. There's a kind of trust that we develop as we practice more. I know um, over the years from having done a lot of retreats, and I probably have done about 25 retreats at this time, at this, close to the solstice time. And it's this very precious time, but that and other retreats, I've really developed the sense that when I go and stop, I trust that what starts moving will be helpful. It's really trusting in what, we, what I like to call sometimes the 
trust in the natural unfolding of our being. That when we simply give space for ourselves, there is a natural movement which in the long run goes towards wisdom and compassion, love and clarity. Not linear. And we don't always get what we want. And when we open, often we get something that we didn't want. If, if no one has told you yet, it's not so helpful to have a lot of expectations for your retreats. <laughs> That's actually getting to my second point about not knowing, but it's like, so they're related. So we, we stop and we uh, stabilize attention and we, in a sense, we develop this trust that we, we stop and that then what needs to move, moves. Again, I like the language of paradox. We stop in order to move again more skillfully. We need to, again, stop the momentum to give some space for what needs to appear. So the second aspect of of, uh, embracing darkness is being with the unknown or the mysterious, cultivating that uh, beginner's mind that John was talking about, being able to really uh, not be with our typical habits of thought so much, to really be there and be open. And really, again, it's another way to talk about our practice. It's that we sit and are open to whatever happens. Again, we often think, I will sit, my mind will become quiet, become quiet, I will experience clarity, bliss, and happiness, and it will last forever. I thought that. Anyone, has anyone thought that in your approach to meditation? I thought that for quite a while. I thought I, thought I would, uh, it would be a linear process. I would um, develop in clarity. My mind would become totally um, at my will, so to speak. That's what I thought at the time. And I would um, get quieter. A bliss would increase. All my problems would go away. And I would be a beacon for humanity. <laughs> Um, no comment. <laughs> uh, but it, it, um, it didn't work out that way. At least in the short run. <laughs> and uh, so that cultivation of the unknown is really, really crucial. And I, I sometimes actually will start a sitting and say to myself, I don't know what's going to happen, particularly at a retreat. I don't know what's going to happen, and whatever happens in this sitting or this walking is okay. It's not a bad strategy, right? It's a way to cultivate that sense of the unknown. And also, the other side of that, of course, is to look for where there are these subtle expectations or assumptions, right? I mean, in our literature at Spirit Rock, we, we probably could be more out front about that, but it wouldn't be such good... Advertising, <laughs> right? You know, come to a retreat. Who knows what you'll experience? It could be bad. <laughs> could be hard, right? So, so that, but that opening to the unknown, it takes a certain confidence and faith, doesn't it, really? When you think about it, it takes, and it really, so it, it's something that you can adopt maybe at first because 
maybe it it's, um, sounds wise, but it comes ultimately out of one's own experience. You've, you've worked enough, seen expectations, see what happens, and then there's a wisdom which is there more and more and is your own that just simply knows it's wise just to really trust in that unfolding, trust in the mystery, really, of our own being and how that unfolds. I've been inspired often by stories of those who were willing to sit with the unknown for periods of their lives. One of my favorite stories is that of uh, Gandhi. In, I think, 1929, there was kind of a hiatus in the Indian independence movement. And uh, Gandhi wasn't sure what to do. And people were restless. There were a lot of people who were advocating uh, violent approaches at that time. And people came to Gandhi and said, what should we do? And he said, I don't know. And they said, you should know, you're Gandhi. He said, I don't know, but I know that if I wait, the voice will come which will tell me what to do. And he went to his uh, home, which was an ashram, on the banks of a river in India. And he sat on his uh, porch for weeks. And he just sat there. And other people felt pressure. And he just sat there and said, I know the voice will come. I do not know what to do. And after six weeks, he said, I know what to do now. And he said, we will march to the sea. Those of you who've seen the Gandhi film know that this was called the Salt March. And he marched to the sea, and I think he started with like a few hundred people. And by the time they got to the ocean, uh, 250 miles away, there were like 15,000 people in the march. And the purpose of the march, his insight was uh, to engage in civil disobedience. The British, believe it or not, claimed a monopoly on the making of salt in India. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? But that's, I guess that's colonialism, right? It's crazy in many ways. And um, he, they, you know, so they broke the law by taking salt water and letting the water evaporate so salt was left. That was against the law. And they did that, and the British responded or reacted with a lot of repression And a lot of historians say this was actually the event or the series of events which um, sort of showed the world some of the brutality that was there and broke the legitimacy. You know, it still took a lot more years for full independence, but that came out of that waiting and that not knowing and the trusting and the listening. And there are wonderful stories, you know, from, from... from others. There's some of you know the beautiful uh, lines from the poet Rilke, who was asked by a uh, person who, whom he called the young poet, what should I do with my life? And Rilke responded with letters, which were later published in the volume called Letters 
to a young poet. Rilke at the time was this ancient 29 years old <laughs> writing, writing, writing these letters, but in any case, and, and he, he counseled a kind of patience in the natural unfolding <coughs> of this young man's life. This is what he wrote, his very beautiful lines. Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions you have themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot be now given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So to have patience and to listen and to be comfortable with not knowing. And this is hard, right? It's hard. It's often hard for us in our minds. And this is really like a human natural tendency. We want to know. We want to categorize. We want to put everything in a framework, right? And what we're learning here is to go against that conditioning. It's to be able just to sit. And over time, we deconstruct some of our frameworks. We can still use them, but we don't buy into them in the same way over time. We don't buy into them as the ultimate truth. Maybe we see them more as possibly helpful frameworks. And we learn how to be without the domination of our frameworks and concepts. And that permits something new to happen. The third aspect of being with the darkness, embracing darkness, is the quality of darkness as the difficult. So this is learning to be and even to open and even to embrace the difficult. And this is really... This is challenging. All of these aspects of embracing darkness are challenging, but it's very challenging to be with the difficult. It's almost uh, what what I learned when I studied logic was called a tautology. To be with the difficult is difficult. (laughs) And... um, and yet this is a part of our practice, that we, we learn how to be with challenges, with difficulties, and particularly we learn how to be with what's uh, unpleasant. And there's, there's this core teaching, which those of you who have been to the Solstice Retreat have heard before, because I give this teaching about every two talks that I give. <laughs> it's called the teaching of the two arrows, and it's... Um, it's a very, very incisive teaching. It goes right to the heart really quickly of what this practice is. And I want to offer that and connect it with the theme of uh, embracing the dark. And this is a teaching about how we skillfully open to what's difficult. The teaching goes like this. And it's a teaching from the Buddha, from the historical Buddha. He asked a kind of rhetorical question, which he often did. He asked the practitioners... Everyone experiences the unpleasant, both non-practitioners and practitioners. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? 
in relationship to the unpleasant. Apparently, there were no good answers from the people listening, so he said, then I will tell you. (laughs) And here is is the answer he gave. He said, we are all, as it were, shot by an arrow. We all sometimes experience the unpleasant. And that experience of the unpleasant could be called being shot by the first arrow. And so what does that mean? It means on the physical level, we sometimes experience um, the body being uncomfortable. And we sometimes we experience that more on the first day of a retreat. Uh, and so we know that we sometimes get ill, we get old, we have soft, vulnerable bodies. We are vulnerable to physical discomfort, to illness, to dying, and so forth. And it's part of human life. Everyone experiences that. We sometimes have emotional difficulties or unpleasant emotional experiences. We have fear, we have anxiety. We may have um, sadness or grief. We may be treated unfairly. We may experience injustice. And everyone has a certain amount of that, some more than others, of course. That's the first arrow. So he says the difference between the practitioner and the non-practitioner is that the non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, tends to shoot a second arrow. We might say at oneself and at others. So what does that look like? On the physical level, it means that when we have physical uh, discomfort or we have unpleasant physical experiences, we contract around the unpleasant. Have you noticed that? We can study that and you know, we can study, oh, my back is hurting and we can feel ourselves tightening and contracting, right? And we, that would be to shoot the second arrow. And so we, we have emotional shooting of the second arrow. I feel angry and I, maybe something has happened, let's say at work, I get angry, I blame myself, I blame others, I get in a bad mood for three days. That's all second arrow, right? I experience injustice and maybe I seek revenge against the person or I try to offer the same amount of pain to that person, whatever. That's all shooting the second arrow. So what the, non, what the non-practitioner does, therefore, is shoot the second arrow. And what we can see is that that causes a great amount more pain. One of the first ways that mindfulness entered into the secular world was through uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction developed by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And that was based on the finding that in the medical world, and he was working with people with chronic pain, 
and they found that a very large percentage of what uh, patients with chronic pain experienced as pain wasn't actually the original stimulus. We might say the first arrow. It was actually the contraction and the tightening and the stress, not to mention the emotional material. And that as much as 80 or 90% of pain was the second arrow. So you could see, you could see where this is going, that the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. The practitioner learns to be with the unpleasant when it's wise to be with it, learns to be with the unpleasant physically, learns to be with unpleasant sensations, and notice the tendencies to reaction and contraction. We learn how to be with unpleasant or difficult emotions and notice the tendencies to proliferation. You know, uh, I think that the same teaching about not shooting the second arrow is the essence of nonviolent movements. It's the essence of the teaching of Gandhi and King, which is to say, we have received pain and oppression. We will not pass it on, but we will also be very firm in working for justice, right? And so it's the same teaching that is really understanding that there's a kind of a cyclical pattern of pain and suffering. Sometimes we say the first arrow is pain. Pain is a given. The second arrow is suffering, and suffering is optional. So it's a radical teaching, right? It goes very far. In terms of our practice, it means that it becomes very crucial to learn how to be with the difficult, with the unpleasant, in these different ways, to be with unpleasant physical sensations, again, when it's wise, when it's not causing damage to the body, but just it's happening because we're not quite used to the posture, right? And we sit with it, or we sit with difficult feelings or difficult thoughts. And the, our society and the culture deeply needs people who are skilled and not shooting the second arrow. You know, it's really something that is, I think, uh, not so common in the culture. You know, I was thinking in, in relationship to the events in Connecticut that um, it's an opportunity to explore the roots of violence. It's an opportunity to go into this without hopefully without the usual stereotypical and and somewhat superficial ways of understanding. I'm not overly optimistic because we don't have a deep culture that understands uh, being able to go into the difficult. It's not deeply rooted in the culture. It's more the opposite is deeply rooted. We tend to want to avoid the difficult and not go into what's painful. you know, I know that a lot from first-hand experience. When I was 18, I worked in the U.S. Congress, actually, as an intern. And um, I learned a lot of things, but some of it was shocking because I didn't see people really willing to look at the issues. Everything was in terms of re-election and politicized. And it was, as an 18-year-old, it was, it was shocking. And I'm not sure it's changed that much because the dynamics are the same. So there's... The world really needs people who are skillful 
at not shooting the second arrow and being able to be with, with what's difficult. Yeah. That would be the roots of being skillful in relationships, with conflict, in communities, and so forth. And that's the training that we're doing right here. That's, uh, you know, it's an inner training here, but it's very much something we bring out and apply in all these different, all these different uh, parts of our lives. The last aspect of darkness I wanted to talk about is darkness as fertile, or darkness as generative. Again, very much like the earth, that when we can be with uh, the darkness in a uh, in an open way, there can be that kind of creativity. There can be the insight that come that came for Gandhi about what to do. There can be some uh, opening of um, our minds and our hearts and our bodies so that we can actually actually see things. Um, and we, we really learn that we can, uh, with that being with what's uh, sometimes difficult, can be creative. You know, I was thinking about this in, in a few ways, but I was, I was uh, thinking there's a, there's a learning theory about adults and it says there are three zones. There's the comfort zone, there's the discomfort zone, and there's the panic zone. <laughs> Guess where we learn? Guess where we learn the most? Right, the discomfort zone, right? Sorry to give you the news, but I think there's some evidence for that. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that we want the comfort zone, and yet we learn in the discomfort zone often. We learn a lot the way that you know, when we have difficulties with a relationship where we can actually be constructive about the difficulty and, and approach it, there can be tremendous deepening, right? There can be tremendous learning about the relationship. And we have a history then. We've dealt with that, right? And we are stronger. And, and if we weren't willing to be with the difficulty, we wouldn't learn. Right? So it's something very beautiful about that, about that process. Or I think that's very true uh, socially. And I know for myself, it was very interesting... Um, I think uh, I, like probably many of you, have had uh, aspects of um, perfectionistic conditioning. Anyone relate to that? Okay. Um, if you weren't honest about that just now, <laughs> if honesty matters to you, then you weren't perfect. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, but what, I, what I, I found something really uh, curious about perfectionism, you know, at a certain point I had the insight, because um, if you asked me, I would say, I really want to learn, yes, but I don't want to make a mistake. <laughs> they don't go together, right? <laughs> right, it's really, and at a certain point I said, oh, I don't want to make a mistake and I want to learn, and, and that's a contradiction, and I need to open to more vulnerability or making mistakes. And, and with that, you know, the, um, I think a key aspect of perfectionism was less strong with that understanding. So there's this way in which uh, being with the being with the unknown or being with the difficult or stopping can be generative like the earth, can be, can be fertile. 
Um, let me just read some beautiful poems from <clears throat> Rilke. Um, there's a book that he wrote called, uh, it's translated as Love Poems to God. And he talks a lot about darkness in the poems. And I'll just read a few lines. Here's one poem. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. And then another poem he writes, You darkness of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits the world to the circle it illumines and excludes all the rest. But the dark embraces everything. Shapes and shadows, creatures and me, people, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence sitting beside me. I believe in the night. And so out of that darkness can come insight or creativity. We sometimes use the metaphor of light for that. And I want to talk then about two aspects, really the first one I've already brought up quite a bit, two aspects of the of um, the way that we invite the light. And the first is really that um, when we really commit to opening to the darkness, there is often that insight, or that there's the light, that is where the light comes out of the dark, so to speak, that the insight comes. And the second is that we can also, in our practice, deliberately invoke the light. And here I'm thinking especially about awakened qualities. So we've looked a lot at the the way that we can have uh, this process. We go into the dark and some learning occurs. We go into difficulty, we go into challenges, and learning comes out of it, or insight, or there's some fruit. Again, an ancient theme in so many traditions. The shaman uh, goes into difficulty. The shaman is actually taken apart in difficult experiences and then reconstituted. You know, is dismembered and then remembered. You know, in, in Christian tradition, in Christian mystical traditions, there's the dark night of the soul, you know, where insight comes out of that process. And there can be that sense as we're on retreat of, of, of all these ways that learning can come out of difficulty. In my own experience, I think I've had two kinds of retreats. I've had retreats where I was sort of stabilizing more in awareness and attention and experiencing uh, sometimes more opening, more insight, more calm, and so forth. And then the other kind of retreats were where there was some real challenge, some difficulty, where I would be in my own experience, it's often been like a, I, you know, I would have a retreat where I would be with fear a lot, where I'd be with uh, one retreat, I was uh, angry for 10 days, eight, about 18 hours a day. Luckily, I wasn't talking with people <laughs> or sending emails, <laughs> right? You know, and, and there's, there are both of those, both of those kind, of, kind of experiences. And I, I have found that it's really, I think the, it's really the rhythm of our practice that we both, you know, we both stabilize, we develop 
beautiful qualities, which and we sometimes experience them more. We have calm. And that almost lets us then open up to something that's challenging. And there's that rhythm where, where there can be both kinds of processes happening. And, and we can, uh, but we can very much uh, see that when we stay with what's challenging, there's often that insight. And then the, the second way that we invoke the light is deliberately cultivating what we might call awakened qualities. We cultivate uh, mindfulness. We cultivate, uh, we cultivate uh, wisdom. We cultivate uh, loving kindness. We cultivate compassion. We deliberately open up to those qualities. And sometimes we experience those in very beautiful and pure forms. And we can really um, see that as a core aspect of our practice, that we are intending, no matter what happens, we're intending mindfulness or we're intending loving kindness. And then we let what happens happen. And we open to our beautiful qualities. We open to our own sort of inner brilliance. You know, in the text it's said that the very nature of the mind has the quality of luminosity and that we open to that. From the, from the Buddha, this mind and heart is radiant and brightly shining and it is free from grasping and aversion. In other texts, uh, it's talked about that the uh, development of loving kindness or metta is also very much linked with luminosity, with this bright quality, which we, I'm sure we taste at different times. And so <clears throat> when, we, when we look at this balance of darkness and light, it's quite, it can be quite, uh, I, I find it quite inspiring sometimes to contemplate it. And, and I love the language of a paradox also, you know, that we go into the dark as we're doing here in order to see better. And we'll actually have some sittings where we turn all the lights out, as I said, where we'll actually be in the darkness. The only thing we can't turn off is the exit sign. I don't know what the metaphysical significance of that is, but... <laughs> uh, but but we, we, we stop and are still in order to move better later, right? There's this beautiful ways to look at it. We go into the dark in order to see we stop in order to be able to move. We are willing to be with the difficult so that it might later be easier. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? And so we can cultivate these practices. Hopefully these, teaching, <clears throat> these teachings can resonate. And when you sit there with uh, a difficult thought, you can remember the teaching of the two arrows, or you can remember this theme of let me just uh, be with the difficult, that this is part of the process. So I want to end with a a poem. This is a poem about light and dark. This is from uh, Jane Hirschfield. This is called Three Times My Life Has Opened. And it's really about darkness and light. Three times my life has opened, once into darkness and rain. Once 
into what the body carries at all times within it and starts to remember each time it enters the act of love. Once to the fire that holds all. These three were not different. You will recognize what I am saying or you will not. But outside my window all day, a maple has stepped from her leaves like a woman in love with winter, dropping the colored silk. Neither are we different in what we know. There is a door, it opens, then it is closed. But a slip of light stays like a scrap of unreadable paper left on the floor or the one red leaf the snow releases in March. This is the uh, invitation of our retreat, is to, is to embrace the, the dark in all these ways, and really in doing so, to invite the light, and ultimately to find that there is uh, dark inside the light and light inside the dark. And that the invitation is simply to learn to cultivate presence with both of them when they appear. So we have now about 30 minutes for walking meditation. And then we come back uh, at nine for a short sitting and we will do something a little bit special but a little bit special. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.